Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, is Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Hello, Ed. I'm well, thank you. Uh, all the better because my heating is fixed. Mmm. Yes, and the rain has stopped here for anyone who's keeping track of our serialised storytelling on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> it's very it's very limited in scattershot, but mainly it's, it's to do with what the weather is like where we're recording. Yeah. Uh, still cold where Matt is, I think. Yeah, he's 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 in uh, Harrogate, mm. and as our narrative arcs go, this iteration of shot reverse shot is essentially meteorologically or temperature based, but that mm. goes to show how old we are without disclosing our ages. I think. Mm. Yeah, it's it's very much a approaching middle age version of the last Airbender in that regard. That's how I like to think of this show. I'm sold. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll uh, go on to the news for this week and i think the first story and uh, i'll let you lead on this emily is the return of the l word show that uh, at one point was kind of very buzzy and tapered off uh, uh, but is now being revived for an, a new generation when this uh, news was released uh, i found about it on instagram because i still follow a lot of the cast on there mm. my immediate thought was oh my God, with the kind of up talk of, mm. je ne sais fuck. <laughs> yeah, not not in terms of a, this is what we've all been waiting for, but just a now, here, okay, I guess. Mm. It's amazing to see a show that meant so much to such a lot of people being rebooted in mm. an age where representation and pushing for more queer stories is coming out it's like okay let's go back to what was for me anyway in my group of friends as we're all sort of starting to figure out in our early teens like oh maybe maybe we're not all super straight and you know the majority of us were women so to have the l word was truer to us somehow than the oc because Mm. it represented a life that maybe we dreamt about having in the future and that reflected our our hopes and what we wanted rather than something like the OC that was just complete escapism and didn't really have any particularly in terms of like relationships and sexuality had zero recognizability in Mm. in terms of our lives and the L word was shot very like the OC though because they're all kind of like around the same time and yeah. it is this quite like straightforward, often studio set up, glossy, continuing drama, bordering on soap. And I think what was impressive about it was it, even though it looked very like pretty much anything else drama wise that was out there, it did have this for the time, like amazingly diverse cast, like it was before Orange is the New Black and to have you know, just 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 a cast of, of people who weren't entirely white. Mm. And it was kind of a bit tongue-in-cheek in places. It was quite melodramatic and it, and it hit these kind of soapier elements. But you did actually see 
relationships that didn't feel like they were there solely for titillation like because because everything it wasn't the contrast like the the normal was set for being gay and being mm. a gay woman yeah, and the whole the whole scale of that and I think I haven't watched any of the original series since so I think oh there may be some bits that probably do not age well at all but it was just so significant it was such a landmark series and I think for me and, and for me of my age group and my time and for a lot of other people I don't think we'd seen something like that that was hey here's your everyday life and the drama is focused on relationships and we because there aren't as many um, men in the equation we can take women's relationships seriously like it wasn't like a a chick lit thing Mm. bits of it were ridiculous and the storylines did sort of push themselves towards the end but i think that's indicative of any show that's allowed to run for some time i just Mm. wonder what it is about right now i wonder how long it's been pushed for because yeah i think there have been sort of like rumblings about it coming back i think um a lot of my reservations are put very well uh, and shared by heather hogan on autostraddle uh in her article the l word reboot is really actually happening this very year which i think also (laughs) gets across the the arched eyebrow that i also feel about this um it's a new showrunner But the original showrunner, um, Eileen Chaikin, is going to serve as an exec producer. We've got three of the main characters uh, reprising their roles. Jennifer Beals, Leisha Haley and Kate Menig, Bette, Alice and Shane, respectively. But we just we just don't know much about the rest of it. Like, I mean, even though it was a bit diverse, it was still very white. Uh, I feel icky thinking about the trans storyline because I think there was maybe only one <laughs> and I don't think it was handled particularly well but I think it's it's quite bold to bring this back because like I said it was pretty significant and and why return to these characters now when mm. you could maybe do a new show about something else I don't know I don't know yeah for me the thing that this kind of reminds me about a little bit is this life plus 10 the oh much, my god yes much maligned uh 10 years later follow-up to this life where you had a show that in its original run had been very very well loved very popular particularly because it depicted it was seen as like the first honest depiction of like an entire generation of people really of you know of british people in their their 20s and then they're like, oh, we're bringing all the characters back, and then you watch it. It's like this is really depressing, <laughs> and yeah. there's, there's just it just feels so like sour, and you can't really see why someone would choose to do that. And that's for me always the nightmare scenario whenever you have a show which existed in a very very specific time and obviously had a very specific appeal and really represented a bunch of people who maybe weren't used to seeing themselves depicted on screen suddenly coming back and being like hey we're gonna do it all again is like suddenly everyone thinking oh yeah this this show was was made for a certain time and place yeah it doesn't fit so well now that's probably doubly true with anything that's going to deal with lgbtqa uh, issues because and stories because like you say there's been a lot of 
progress, not enough, but a lot of progress over the last decade or so in terms of representation and allowing queer storytellers to come forward and tell their own stories in their own ways. But the fact that it's a new storyteller, a a, a new showrunner, does make me think, oh, maybe that is kind of the reason is someone's come in and says, oh, I have an interesting take on this, which uh, could be very, uh, could make it like very exciting and hopefully revitalize it and not make it just kind of a ultimately very depressing revisitation of characters people previously liked same because i would love to see some older queer women represented on screen that would be Mm. brilliant and if they're characters that in some way we already know it's just as long as those core three that are reprising their roles don't get kind of like swept over by a tide of kind of you know ingenue (laughs) much younger Mm. characters it's like what's the point of this and i i know what you mean i i I feel that same um sort of darkness churning in my stomach in the same way that I felt with train spotting too it was like I think that mm. was a very a wasted opportunity to really dig down into these characters who were older who were stuck in like deeply destructive addictive patterns and you know what maybe the best case scenario is that it will be a Gilmore Girls type situation where you have such mm. a loyal fan base whatever happens you're going to have a split I think yeah. that's that's the best that's the best that I can see everyone coming out of this, possibly. Our next story, and this will take us into our main topic, is the news that Ultraviolet, the online locker service, I think is the technical term, is closing down Ultraviolet for people who uh, didn't use it, which I think would be most people, uh, as evidenced by the fact it's closing down, was a service whereby people who had you know bought a physical copy of a dvd would be given a code they would then enter that code and then they would have a digital version of that film kind of saved in sort of a cloud system for a long time Uh, ultraviolet had been in use for uh, a number of years but it and it had a lot of buy-in from a lot of different studios and retailers who supported it but crucially it didn't have the support of disney who launched their own service called i believe called movies anywhere which started in 2017 and had kind of a wider base of support amongst different companies and studios and event and as kind of um if not supplanted it because this isn't really an area that a lot of people use anyway because it's a weird no man's land between streaming and just owning a thing but it has kind of shined a light on how companies are struggling to make use of of the internet outside of those two places outside of streaming or people just owning a copy of something digitally through amazon or itunes or whatever the model that they tried to use for ultraviolet which wasn't helped by the fact that i always found its interface very clumsy to use and often involved having to sign up for like three separate websites in order to just watch a movie that you already had a dvd of kind of felt awkward and hard to use so it's maybe not surprising that it's closing down but i think it does point to how you know efforts to try and break away from the established ways in which people watch movies now uh, have have not been that successful. Yeah, I have never heard of Ultraviolet. Like, I mm. um, don't know how I haven't. I I think it is seems to be something that's more of a US thing. Yeah, or it just kind of went over my head. I think because in terms of like the first time I bought something digital, it was on iTunes. Mm. Um, and this idea of having a locker rather than just something that you could log into your own account through 
supplier that you already had because that's the thing itunes you don't sign up for you just have your sign mm. your signing up is is implicit in buying an apple product and i think there's something terrifying like i'm not sure exactly i might have to fact check this in terms of how many um itunes subscribers there are around the world but i wouldn't be surprised if it's in the billion stages which is terrifying because that's more than the populations of most countries mm. so ultraviolet again yeah just sounds a bit fiddly like it came yeah. in and kind of and it's i think it will go down in one of those it'll become like the betamax of the digital mm. age it's like oh yeah we can see the kind of the pros of it but the cons got sorted out by something else that was just a lot more streamlined and efficient and the kind of second mouse gets the cheese like unfortunately ultraviolet's mm. just in the trap like when we were talking about ultraviolet the first thing that i thought of was that sort of vampire film with mila jovovich so that just yeah. goes to show how with it i am sorry that is the first thing that shows up when you search for it which also probably isn't a, isn't, <laughs> uh, isn't helping oh. them. their seo was not great oh no but again it's it's off the back of the wave of things like filmstruck of course, which we all sort of mourned not that long ago, because even though I didn't have it, I, I wanted to and thought maybe, mm. or at least that it was, it sounded like a brilliant idea, but it's the the kind of hazard of this constantly shifting digital landscape and having access to your film collection without having a tangible physical product. But even that itself is hard for rights and territories and it's no wonder piracy is still rife because unless you sort out your rights and territories and can't get physical media out then of course people are gonna pirate your stuff if it's not if it's not available i was whining to you and matt offline ed about uh trying to source the 70s film girlfriends mm. for my yeah. 52 challenge and it just seems impossible to get anywhere i'm like for the love of i want to legally watch this film <laughs> give me an option let me pay money mm. and this is and this is the issue like where are these more niche places and, and providers gonna be i mean movies still seems to be doing okay and that has a very specific model of like short-term curation and in mm. terms of its content because i don't want netflix or amazon prime to be the only places to get stuff i don't want them to be any more monopolies than they already are mm. so it'd be it would be nice to have somewhere that that does have these these kinds of things available because what is a digital locker other than like a library in a way mm. and we just we just don't seem to have the right um sustainable thing for these other ideas to flourish these other platforms to flourish ultraviolet does not sound like that platform <laughs> but i do feel a little bit sad of its demise in, in the same way that you hear about someone who's passed away that you you didn't know about and you only hear mm. about them when they're gone and you think oh well you know they had some ideas yeah for me my my main experience of ultraviolet was that uh my friend and editor of boxofficeprofits.com david mumpower got me to sign up for it a couple of years ago the idea being that everyone who wrote for that site would have like a shared ultraviolet account and anyone who had an ultraviolet code which they got from buying a dvd would you would then put in there and that everyone would be able to watch it and i thought oh that's kind of like a neat idea that makes 
more sense than I think how it was intended to be used for most people, which would be to just have it as like an individual account. And it would be like a- an easy thing to share with friends. Like if you bought a physical copy of a DVD and you had an ultraviolet code, you could just give it to a friend of yours who had ultraviolet and say, here you go. Yes. Now you also have Zombieland, enjoy or whatever. But the uh, the problem I had, and this was like apparent from when I first signed up for it, was like I signed up for it and I was like, okay, I don't see any of the movies that people landed. What am I doing wrong? And then it was like, oh no, what you also have to do, you also have to sign up for Voodoo. Okay, what's Voodoo? Well, that's kind of a, that's kind of a service run by Walmart or whatever. Okay, so I signed up for that and then I can watch all of it. And then I think I also had to sign up for like a third account that also had a name that was just impossible to remember and. It took me like a good like two days to get it all working because I just kept quitting in frustration. Yeah. And like eventually he was coaxed into actually finishing the sign up. And like uh, David asked for feedback afterwards. And I was like, yeah, this whole setup is such a nightmare yeah. <laughs> compared to um, like you said, like iTunes or, or Amazon, where it's like, OK, you're, you've signed in, you set up. If you want to buy something, it takes you like two clicks and you own it. And yeah. that just seems way more more streamlined but it also points to and this is kind of pointing to broader story from this week which we don't have time to really get into but the stories about layoffs at companies like vice and buzzfeed and all of the journalism jobs that have just evaporated over the last week where in pretty much every instance what you hear is that oh these departments and these newsrooms weren't losing money in fact they were often very pop they were very profitable but they weren't making enough money as far as the corporate overlords and as the, uh, the, the the shareholders were concerned. And if your aim is to maximise profits, then as opposed to provide a public service or to provide just a good service in the case of something like what Ultraviolet, I think, was intended to be and kind of wasn't in practice, you know, then the bottom line becomes, well, then I guess we just start cutting people's jobs or closing the service down. And that was also fundamentally the thing with filmstruck like i don't think filmstruck was like a massive money maker for for warner media but it probably wasn't losing them a ton of money compared to you know anything else they were running but the fact that it was was probably never projected to ever be a huge profit source for them was why ultimately they killed it because it's not about providing something that is like very good and possibly could grow and slowly accumulate a profit it's all about will this make us a profit in the next year? No. Well, get rid of it then, which is, uh, you know, detrimental for pretty much everyone involved, really. Uh... <laughs> On that note, uh, <laughs> we're, we're going to talk about a better time, a time in the kind of late 90s to mid 2000s when the special feature reigned supreme and uh, in terms of like physical media and things like that this was something that you and i talked about uh, a while ago about how we both had kind of very fond memories of i think of specifically like the futurama audio commentaries uh which i think i've I've listened to a lot uh over my life (laughs) um and just how there was a time when dvd was first ascending where there was this this kind of whole generational thing where people were suddenly having access to all of these materials that were being added on. So you had audio commentaries, you had making ofs, stuff that uh, I think did for, you know, what I would consider our generation, people who were sort of teenagers at the turn of the, the, the 21st century, 
what video store was for people who are a couple of years older for us it was like oh this is a thing that allows you to develop a level of cine literacy and gain a knowledge about the way in which art you love is made that had previously not been available for sure the futurama dvd commentaries are definitely a big part of why i wanted to do anything performing wise Mm. in the first place so if you don't like my stuff ain't my fault um you can you can go it's right probably ken keeler's fault it is ken keeler's fault and john tamaggio go to the source <laughs> because that was it it was like god listening to these people who really loved being in a room together and clearly mm. got on with each other and it was this idea of like the in jokes you were in commentaries you are actually behind the scenes and yeah. to feel welcomed into that in your own home was something some buzz particularly as a 14 year old who'd never touched a drop of alcohol um that was how i got Mm. my kicks and i think commentaries in particular were one of my favorite favorite things like that was you'd watch the film and then you'd start back at the dvd menu and you'd watch it again with the commentary and i did this with the one that really sticks with me is the donnie darko commentary Mm, between Richard Kelly and Jake Gyllenhaal and they're still they clearly get on they understand each other they have a shorthand that's amazing to listen to they're both still pretty young men who can't quite believe they managed to pull it off Mm. it also features Jake Gyllenhaal's Christopher Walken impression Wow, which is one of the best I've ever heard but it's not just Christopher Walken it's as if Frank the Bunny were played by Christopher Walken. <laughs> and I don't even want to attempt it because it's something that you need to... That's the reason to dig out your DVD player and get a copy of it. It's it's totally, totally worth it. And like you said, in terms of understanding how things work, listening to Richard Kelly and the timbre of his voice change anytime Drew Barrymore comes on screen because he holds her in such high esteem, because we understand that basically the film wouldn't really have got made if it weren't for people like Drew Barrymore and Patrick Swayze mm. atta- you know, being attached and being on board. That, I mean, Donnie Darko has an absolutely stellar cast. <laughs> like, it's insane. Yeah. Things like that, yeah, there's a... And I think that's it, missing that literacy and also something that isn't press junkety or marketing. Mm. And the thing that I will always remember is slightly tangential to like specifically special features, but Donnie Darko did that amazing website that was actually a sort of treasure hunt where you would get deeper and deeper into this mysterious kind of code cracking exercise almost. So it felt like a augmented reality promo, but it wasn't, uh, it didn't, it didn't really give you much actual information about the film. It just gave you, a taste of what it was like and once you'd I remember being on that website trying to crack it and then I managed to get to the very end and just be like oh my god I feel like I'm right back at the start and that was amazing and I think that's the thing about special features as well like they just give you there was something about you already love the film or you're interested <clears throat> enough in the film to get it and and this is your reward you, yeah. you get a deeper dive because you're in and that was special they're called special features for a fucking reason. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed 
that element, particularly in the early days of special features, because initially, obviously, you had like DVDs that were just you know in in the cardboard cardboard sleeves with nothing on. You had to turn them over halfway through, which seems oh like one God. of those things. But I I feel if you mention that to you know your your eighteen year olds now, that would seem insane. <laughs> it's like yeah, you had a DVD, you had to turn it over if the movie was like over ninety minutes long. Yeah. <laughs> which is which is kind of strange uh but they they would usually come with like very bog standard stuff like oh here's the theatrical trailer and uh menus with music i think oh. like, interactive menus was always like trumpeted on the back of the box and then once the technology advanced and they could fit more data on then people started to get really experimental with some of the stuff the one that i really remember making me sit up and take notice and think oh people are putting a lot of thought into these was the dvd from memento yes which was structured in such a way that it was very hard to figure out how to do anything like it was all clicking on different photos and photos took you to sub menus and there was an option to watch the movie in chronological order that you had to like scout around and would take you like a good solid hour of clicking on every possible menu until you found it and that sort of stuff I thought was really, really cool because it suggested that the people who are making the movie and who were trying to sell you on this thing saying, hey, here's the movie again that you can watch in your home and it's more expensive than, you know, a VHS at this point, were like, okay, we're going to try and use the technology we have in a new and innovative way. And the Futurama DVDs also had that. They had lots of hidden extras that you could get by clicking on different things in the background. Like if you were just kind of if you're watching on a pc it was easy to do but with a dvd player you could also just kind of hit direction on a sub menu and suddenly it would highlight uh, an object in the background and you would get like a message from the creators and things like that which was always kind of like a cool thing and, and again really pointed to the fact that the people who are making these dvds really cared about every aspect of the work that they were involved with and that i always found that very cool yeah my early days of um internet searching was always to do with film and being on forums trying to find easter eggs mm, so yeah. called so called because of course you'd go on this kind of weird hunt and take different directions to get to them and yeah it was always like writing down the forum instructions on a notepad with actual <laughs> pen and paper because we only had a desktop and then walking downstairs to then figure out if i could translate it from dvd remote to ps2 remote because that was what i had mm -hmm. but the satisfaction of getting the um futurama alien language translator i mean that was a great mm. day because you just had this beautiful key that unlocked a whole different world of jokes and it felt like you've done the work too we we've mm. worked and you've worked and we've come together and i think it was for me, just added this element of fandom that wasn't just, it really did spark my wanting to be part of it and to work mm. in that kind of thing rather than just like, oh, I'm a fan and this is really great. It was like these people and the way that they approach their work and they are still having fun with it. But I think you're yeah. right as well. Like the crucial thing not to overlook is that it, it was the peak of well how do we make this an even better deal for people who are still using vhs mm. 
but it was but it was exciting as well to showcase the technology like you say like we've got we've got the data we can <laughs> we can put loads of stuff on it and i think particularly for my generation it was it would have to be lord of the rings was yeah, the real definitely. the real push not just the extended versions of the film because when you think about how many vhs's it would have taken to to actually store the entirety of an extended version of one of mm. the lord of the rings films my god i mean but then beyond that it was things like here's interviews with the cast here's i remember watching videos of um orlando bloom and elijah wood learning sword fighting mm. and you did just have i wonder how successful dvd would have been if there hadn't been as landmark a new franchise as that with so many nooks and crannies to go down and explore because yeah you've got things like star wars being re-released or blade runner things like that but that's kind of gathering older material and repackaging it whereas i think lord of the rings went into it being like look we have such an expansive project there's loads of stuff that we can use here that is that that just enhances your love of the film more and i think he i think as fans who weren't necessarily like interested in getting into film which was how i approached it it just brings you a whole other level of appreciation for the amount of work that goes into it mm, and and those ones were especially good because that whole production had such a had something of an epic story to itself yes you know like it, it was a movie that people have been trying to get made for ages and that uh, peter jackson and fran walsh and philippa boyens have been trying to get made for years and years and years and have been going around all these different studios and eventually settling at, at new line and then taking years and years and years to do all the pre-production and i think it's quite funny that it, it, it kind of made something of a star of someone like richard taylor who did all of the armory yes it's just such a superstar on those those dvds and, and on those interviews just talking about the sheer amount of research that went into deciding what the orc helmets would look like and having to come up with all the world building stuff that you only see on screen for like a couple of seconds and i'm trying to think okay how do we put across some of the information that Tolkien kind of put in these reams and reams of text and in appendices, you know, how much of that stuff can we just cram into every possible frame? And The Lord of the Rings, more than maybe any other franchise of that time, was really well suited for that because it was such a colossal undertaking and there were so many elements of it that people could really, really dig into. And and it felt in some ways like, a much grander version of of what I think of as uh, the first special feature that I can remember seeing, which was the making ofs that were put onto the VHS release of the Star Wars special editions that came out in the late nineties. Yes, where they <laughs> this is this is another kind of like weird analog, analog technology thing where the making ofs were put on the same video cassette as the film and they played after the film. Yeah, so you just watched the whole film and then you had like an extra like thirty or forty minutes of stuff where people were talking about the making of the movie uh which i think for me like i watched those when i was 10 or 11 maybe and those were that was the first time i really remember understanding oh these movies are made by someone called a director and the director does a lot of stuff and there are all these people who help it and there's all of this special effects stuff going on as well and that was kind of like the the slightly creaky predecessor to the 
really epic stuff that you saw with the Lord of the Rings ones. Because if you add up all of the Lord of the Rings extras, it's pretty much as long, if not longer, than the complete versions of the movies. You know, it's it's an amazing thing for nerdy people who are into process to kind of sit down and just kind of watch all of. Completely. I think my favourite ever special features, though, is on the DVD edition of Jam, mm. <laughs> Chris Chris Morris's seminal Channel 4 series, which is two DVDs in itself, mm-hmm. purple and silver. I remember that very clearly. And the special features are the episodes, but they're called Jam... Mm-hmm. And they're just all tweaked and edited a bit weird. Like there's an option that you can watch like all six together at once. There are some <laughs> that are just like tiny. And I love it because, yeah, I'm a I'm a big Chris Morris fan girl. And it just repeats exactly the same kind of vibe that he's had where he's things like the day-to-day where the medium itself is a thing to play with. And yeah. to just cheekily turn your special features into a piss take of special features because there's nothing special there's nothing extra it's just a slightly different perspective often quite annoying it's actually (laughs) physically hard to watch but I love that as well because it also feels in keeping with everything and Mm. I and I appreciate that completist attitude to tone yeah, for me, the Chris Morris extra that I really like because it's such a complete and completely in character piss take for him was on the DVD release of Brass Eye where they had like an audio commentary and the audio commentary was supposedly just a bunch of homeless people that he had brought in off the street and had them sit in front of microphones and just talk about nothing for the entirety of the episode. And it's just such a weird, funny choice of like subverting expectations of what an audio commentary is meant to be, but also very much playing into his image as someone who doesn't necessarily want to explain their work. Completely. Someone who's very controlling about the image that he puts out there to basically say, oh, yeah, here you go, here's an extra audio commentary, and you listen to it, and it's just complete incoherent rambling for 30 minutes. Yeah, it's more of the same. You're not getting any more of his process. The most he wants to share is his actual work, and that's the point, and that's why I love him, and always will. Mm -hmm. And on a similar note, I always thought it was really funny that the dvd commentary for dodgeball the one that was easy to find there was a hidden secret one but the one that was actual that you actually could find from one of the menus was just vince vaughn and the director being really passive aggressive to each other for the for like 45 minutes and then getting into a fight and then leaving and the rest of the commentary track being like a couple of the audio engineers coming in and being like, what the fuck are we going to do? This thing's still recording. And then just, I think they just put mood music over it. And then there was an actual one, there was an actual audio commentary then talking about the movie that you could also find to it. But I thought that was a really funny use of the medium as well, just to be like, we could do a straightforward audio commentary and we will do that. But what we could also do is some weird comedy bit that will only be for people who are <laughs> who are uh, kind of nerdy and strange enough to want to listen to an audio commentary for Dodgeball. Oh, yeah, and that is 100% me. The other commentary that sprung to my mind very quickly just there was, uh, I remember um, 
in terms of nerdy strange people wanting wanting the goods has to be the spaced special edition dvd mm. collection oh yeah um the commentaries are absolutely fantastic um that is where and where they actually seem to be workshopping in the first series little sparks of conversation end up in other bits of work like mm. getting into an argument about whether dogs can look up or not um mm-hmm. the yeah. phrase slice of fried gold um mm. and there's something really lovely about watching a kind of journey happen and then again on uh, the second series the uh, referenceometer which mm. is the missing key in in terms of yeah cine literacy and making the connections between oh that's what that's referencing i'll go and watch that now you and i had yes. spoken like many a time on on here and offline about how the simpsons did a lot of that for us and that you'd go out and actively mm. seek it but that was lovely just to have that kind of ticker tape along and have the the welcoming in like as a gateway to other cultural tidbits it was hard to beat my uh my favorite joke in the referenceometer and i think they added this for like a later version of the dvd when they were like we should probably do this for the first series as well is when they're doing the party and daisy is like lying about the play that she's written uh and she's like uh well it's like uh avocado window or uh, guacamole window like whatever she ends up calling it like it does say guacamole window by daisy steiner 2019 or something um and they they added another one during the in the exchange that tim uh is has with uh mike in the pub where he's like he's not my boyfriend here you go babe thanks darling uh and then like it comes up with shaun of the dead 2004 because they realized yeah we kind of did the exact same joke yeah yeah. (laughs) Uh, and i always thought that was a lovely little detail that they they obviously added in uh many many years later but uh that that was um that was one i thought oh that's a that's a lovely little touch for the fans no one no one's above retconning it just gives me a a warm cozy feeling inside or maybe that's just Mm. my fixed heating it's hard to tell (laughs) uh and i also really like and i think I, w- I was thinking about how all like audio commentaries to some extent feel like the very the natural predecessor to podcasts more yeah. than even regular radio because it, it a lot of those are you know you have people sitting in a room for an hour an hour and a half at a time they have a loose idea of what they're going to talk about because obviously they're going to talk about the movie but it offers so many opportunities for people to just kind of go off on like tell funny stories or to like riff around things this is particularly true of like the simpsons audio commentaries where you had a lot of these writers who often hadn't watched the show the episodes in years being able to just kind of like sit down and kind of like tell funny stories from the room and like how the reason that selma's iguana is called jub jub is because conan o'brien for like a full year was just saying the word jub jub over and over again <laughs> as a pitch for something in the show <laughs> And eventually they were just like, fine, we'll just call the fucking iguana jump jumps and start saying it. <laughs> Which is like a lovely little detail to kind of come up. Or when they talk about like jokes that they had written that never got animated and things like that, which are, are, are really, really funny. One that I, I always really like is from the episode where Sideshow Bob, Bob's brother comes in and uh, at the end him and Sideshow Bob are fighting on the dam at the end and a load of money full like the the suitcase full of money kind of throws over the edge of the dam and falls down and on the 
finalized episode there's like a little house that you can see down in the bottom and they said oh we had a joke here where like hans moleman lives there and he sees the money falling down and he's like oh my god amazing and he also then the the gun falls down so he picks up the gun and points it at the air and just says keep it coming (laughs) (laughs) he's trying to bribe god (laughs) into giving him more money which is such an, an amazing gag and i was like oh that's that's great uh and those kind of little things really do feel like a predecessor to the informal format of a lot of podcasts that have come since and this is especially true if uh, if people ever listen and i recommend this highly anyone ever listens to the mr show audio commentaries which are people like scott ockerman and paul f Tompkins who reshaped their entire careers through podcasting talking about a show that they made and just kind of riffing off of each other and it's incredibly uh delightful and really just feel like a predecessor to the the form uh, that we now practice. In practice, we do. But what about what about the future? This is the thing that I miss because I can't really pinpoint exactly when I stopped buying DVDs as standard, mm. and they still feel quite special to me. Or you know, if I can't yeah. watch something online, and I really or I really love it, I'll buy it on DVD. But that is something I miss now from streaming, and I feel like there's not a holistic package anymore like i mean i could i can look on youtube for interviews and making ofs and things like that but there's that's a that's a thing that streaming doesn't afford it's almost like the convenience and sheer scale of choice of streaming has managed to kind of outdo that like special stop saying special in relation to special features but like they were special um but mm. like that that incredibly special relationship that you build and that you kind of dig into you know in terms of easter eggs that you would actually interact it, it was a little bit like a game mm. in terms of finding these these tasty nuggets and i and i don't know is that something that is there a way to bring that back like all, all i can think of that's anywhere near similar and is vastly inferior is something like the trivia on prime that mm. stops the film stops whatever you're watching in order to just read this like tidbit from imdb that might not actually be verified yeah i think f- the only the only way that really continues on currently i think is with, with these boutique how you know kind of like releases like you know criterion is the big one where they're always putting out a bunch of new titles every month they always have a load of extras on it that essays and things like written by great critics stuff that basically says hey this is worth you spending 40 60 80 dollars you know however much they end up costing based on uh, based on you know how many movies you're getting and things like that Or, or in some instances an entire extra film if you want such as i think on the dvd release of steven soderbergh's king of the hill which also comes bundled with his movie the underneath which i don't think is available anywhere else (laughs) because it's like one of his ones that he does that no one really talks about and is largely forgotten like that's pretty much the only way you can watch it easily is if you buy the the blu-ray of that which is uh, quite funny and and they they do stuff like that scream factory and shout factory you know doing an amazing job in putting out things like that um masters of cinema be another one the bfi in the uk obviously do a great job every time they put out something so it definitely feels as if maybe the era because 
you know, like this is all tied into something like the financial crash, which yeah. uh, devastated the physical media market because people just didn't have the spare money to spend on, you know, just buying every no. movie on DVD anymore. Uh, well, and certainly, certainly not when they were also trying to launch the much more expensive format of Blu-ray. The only companies that are really doing well off of that sort of stuff are companies who have basically solely dedicated to physical media at this point. And I think studios will occasionally, you know, kind of push the boat out for a really big release, like um, say what you will about the movies themselves, but the Hobbit movies all had like really great extras as yeah. uh, evidenced in Lindsay Ellis's great series of video essays about the, the, the makings of those movies. They went in depth on those because it was kind of expected. The fans expected to see those sort of extras, but in most cases, the physical media market is so small now compared to what it was that a lot of studios yeah, just don't necessarily see the value of it unless it's for a catalogue title, like, you know, a movie that's 20 or 30 years old. And it's like, oh, people will want to own this on the best possible format and we'll put a load of extras in, you know, often, you know, extras that have existed for a while. But I'm really not sure if there's a way for that to be standard for all movies now, as opposed to ones that are just kind of deemed significant either by the studio making them or whatever label has got the rights to them and thinks oh we really need to do something great for this blu-ray release of you know like uh george romero's martin or whatever yeah uh which is a shame yeah it is it's almost like maybe the solution is for workers to have more disposable income it's almost like that's going to benefit mm. industry Mm. gently gently floating that slightly uh capitalist critical idea there yeah it's always it's always worth a punt socialism (laughs) (laughs) are you uh gonna be working on aoc's campaign (laughs) 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 i think i think that's a that's a a good thing you could put on a shepherd ferry style poster socialism (laughs) worth a punt now we end this episode we end all our episodes with shot reverse shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week russian doll which dropped very recently uh, on netflix and uh you i believe um and matt uh covered ever so slightly on the tv preview mm. i am thoroughly enjoying it i'm five episodes in it took me a couple to get into it i have to admit i think i wasn't really that fussed which I think is difficult when you are dealing first off with a protagonist who is prickly and self-obsessed it Mm. can be hard to want to see them change particularly if they don't seem that fussed about changing but there were little kind of hooks that kept me into it and it and it reaps the return particularly when you reach the halfway mark i think it looks absolutely beautiful it's nice to see something that does just look very different and that has a strong i'm gonna say it aesthetic that isn't Mm. sci-fi fantasy like it's very well made and it is eight episodes of 30 minutes which is my absolute favorite (laughs) so it does take a little bit long to get going considering it is a shorter run but Mm -hmm. It's got a really great creative team um, behind it with Leslie Headland, who I think is much overlooked, unfortunately. Um, so hopefully this changes um, that she'll be able to get more of her writing out there because I think she has 
some fantastic emotional insight and a really filthy sense of humour. I've got Natasha Leon and Amy Poehler mm. as well. There is a brilliant article, and I'm doing that thing where I've completely forgotten who the author is. My bad. But there is a brilliant review of it on the internet that does actually criticise the involvement of um, Amy Poehler's manager who did represent Louis C.K. and was possibly complicit in kind of the cover-up of that as well. And I recommend reading that review because it is um, it manages to really beautifully and deftly appreciate what the show has going for it whilst also being disappointed about the kind of making and behind it. So I think it's important to bear that in mind, but I still think it is an interesting piece of work. Fantastic. I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing that. Uh, like I mentioned on the preview, I love uh, Natasha Leon, and this seems like a fantastic vehicle for her. I'm going to recommend a documentary from 1970. Now, the new season of Documentary Now is fast approaching. I think it debuts in like a month or so. Can't wait. And I was looking at the list of like documentaries they're taking as inspiration for this season, and one of them which I, I hadn't ever really heard of, was called Original Cast Album Company, which is a documentary by D.A. Pennybaker, in which he spent a day filming the recording of the cast, com- the cast recording of Company. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to see John Mulaney play Stephen Sondheim, I should probably get a sense of what he was going for. So I went on YouTube and watched it, and it is an absolutely wonderful documentary. It ha- It basically is done in... Uh, the film verite style so there's not really much in the way of voiceover or anything there's a little bit of text at the beginning explaining what's happening but for the most part it's just the camera roving through this recording studio as sometime kind of coaches all of the actors through the process of recording the album you know giving them advice often very passive aggressively in a way that's very very fun and also capturing kind of moments of emotional toil as they're trying to kind of do often very very difficult work in a very constrained times time frame you know there's a whole section of the movie where he's trying to kind of coach elaine stritch into singing a particular song and it's just not quite getting there and it's a really really great 50 minute long documentary about this really unique pressure cooker of creativity where you have all these people put in one room for pretty much 24 hours just trying to get a album recorded and it i think it really captures the the energy and the uh the the insanity of that idea really really well so uh, that's on youtube i'll put a link in the show notes for anyone who wants wants to see it and i would highly recommend it original cast album company awesome and that fits right into my uh my ongoing 52 resolution challenge of the 70s so cheers ed for doing my work for me happy to help <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on stitcher player fm itunes all these places leave us a review uh rate us and recommend it to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me bye